throughout the history of mankind, one of the most powerful forces has been curiosity. Curiosity is a natural human trait that has led to countless advances in knowledge, technology, and even spiritual growth. Now, have you ever noticed that we tend to be most curious about things that we will soon experience firsthand? In other words, things that are not out of reach or hypothetical, but that which we don't really need to ask questions about because we're about to know. We're about to experience those things. An upcoming vacation, for example, a new job, a new home, versus, say, the wingspan of a pterodactyl. 35 feet, by the way. We ask questions like, I wonder what my new boss is going to be like. They say, honey, let me, let me get online and see how big our hotel room is going to be. Can we drive by and peek into the backyard one more time before we move in? That kind of curiosity isn't just academic, but it is a mixture of curiosity and excitement. And I believe that's how we feel over these past several weeks as we have studied our resurrection bodies. Even though we will experience it firsthand, we will know through experience what our bodies are like, what they can or cannot do. We want to know now. We have questions. What will it be like? How will it happen? Will I get my vision back? Will I feel pain? Fortunately for us, Paul answers some of the questions to help us with our excitement and anticipation. Unfortunately, however... The reason he does this is, again, to address the Corinthian skeptics, doubters, and frankly, fools. This morning, we enter the second phase of our series on the resurrection. Having explained the promise in Christ of bodily resurrection, as well as its place in the plan of God, followed by an admonition to our practical response to these truths that we saw last week, Paul will spend the remaining section in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection body. What is it like? And he does this, as with almost everything we've seen thus far in 1 Corinthians, by either addressing or anticipating pushback from the doubters, the skeptics. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at a larger chunk this morning, verses 35 through 41. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 41, and perhaps to ease a bit of your expectation, in our passage this morning, he won't go into the details of the physical body, but lay a foundation to help us explain what it will be like. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 41. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there's one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, 
and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars different from star in glory. Well, let me unpack this for you in five foundational illustrations of the resurrection body. Five foundational illustrations of the resurrection body. Our first illustration is not an illustration per se, but it is the continued skepticism. The continued skepticism. Look again at verse 35 and the first two words of verse 36. He writes, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. Again, this is not so much an illustration of the resurrection body, but how Paul will go into introducing the illustrations, segueing into the resurrection body. And as we see in many of his writings, the Apostle Paul anticipates questions or challenges to his teaching. It's an effective method of instruction, especially in his day, an effective method of communication since people could not respond immediately. What did you mean by this? Can you clarify this? As we could today with text or email, they couldn't even do it within a few days as they could with the modern postal system. And so he needs to get everything out in one fell swoop, in one letter, with the assumption that he may not have another chance due to the basic realities of how such things were delivered, but also even more so, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians 15, because his life is constantly in danger. He could die at any minute. Here, he anticipates two questions. We know this is not mere curiosity or even Christian excitement as we would, as we would have because he calls them fools in the next verse. And so they are challenging. It goes in line with so much that we have seen so far in this epistle. The first question is in regard to the possibility or mechanics of the actual raising of the dead. He asks, how are the dead raised? In other words, with the tone of a skeptic, how is that even possible? How could God possibly do that? Or, to put it more bluntly in modern speech, yeah, right. In other words, they're still objecting to the resurrection. And the second question has to do with the actual form of the body and with what kind of body do they come. At its core, it's the same question. But it's more, this one's more specific regarding the makeup of the resurrection body. This specificity highlights the difficulty of the first issue raised. They think they've got them by being more specific. Kind of like a a parent who challenges their child then asks specific questions to show how foolish the child's original premise is. Oh, you're going to run away? And where are you going to go? How are you going to get there? And so these skeptics think they've got them by asking specific questions, but he's going to answer them. You see this same condescending tone as I did with that child toward Paul which he uses to transition to discussion, the discussion to our new topic of the resurrection body. I do want to point out, with the recognition that ours is curiosity and theirs is doubt, that part of their confusion lies in the same issue as ours. That is, they, as well as many Christians today, 
assume that our future resurrection involves the reanimation of corpses. Do you see what I'm saying? The reuniting of the molecules into a new body, kind of like we've seen in the movies. Broken bones and skeletons being fixed and then popping out of graves and then all of this dust start forming into flesh and covering that skeleton. That's what we think. Or ashes floating out of an urn or out of the ocean where they've been scattered on the seashore. Without the benefit of movie magic that has put those images into our heads, you can see their even greater degree of skepticism. How is this even going to happen? And before answering the questions, Paul calls the one who would pose such a question a fool. A fool is someone who lacks sense, you know that. It's an accusation that is justified here at this point because of everything that he has said about the resurrection and you're still doubting? In other words, if he's still trying to undermine the reality of the resurrection after all the evidence Paul has provided, well then, he's nothing but a fool. Obviously, fool is the opposite of wise. And if we were to take into account the Old Testament's use of the word, then we understand this to mean more than mere intellectual deficiency. Oh, you played with that fire? That was foolish. It's more than that. In the biblical sense, a fool is someone who lacks wisdom, but also, and this is so important, fails to take God into account. Better to say someone who lacks wisdom because he fails to take God into account. Psalm 14.1, you know well, Psalm 53.1 says the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But in our context for this morning, it is not so much denying God's existence, but not taking into account the power and abilities of God and thus saying, how is it possible that He could resurrect the dead? Specifically then, His creative power. Even more foolish because, well, look around. He can do it. Paul uses this harsh term to emphasize the stupidity of the questions. And I say that, the S word, giving you some background that that's basically a four-letter word in my home with my young children. It's a bad thing. He's being harsh. This is serious. And especially since the tone is such that the one asking is mocking or taunting and not genuinely seeking knowledge and definitely not seeking worship. By the way, I want to give you a quick practical side note that's not really in this passage. As believers... And as believers who have the right view of the Scriptures, we need to make sure we know also when people who ask whether they're mocking or whether they generally want to know and grow. We're so ready for a fight sometimes that we assume they're mocking and we're ready to pounce and crush and destroy and smash. But it may be they just want to know because they're curious and they want to grow. So we need to find the discernment to know which is which and understand that we are not to waste our time in throwing pearls before swine, but at the same time we are the shepherd and love and teach and admonish. Back to the text. 
The fool is not just one who denies God's existence again, but also those who embrace his reality, but deny all of his attributes. Not denying all of them in one fell swoop, but any one of them, or any practical ability or outworking of any one of them. It is foolish as a believer to say, I know God is sovereign, but I just don't think he's concerned about this trial that I'm in right now. You see, that's not a fool in the sense that you're saying there is no God. It is foolish that as one who knows God and has His Word is denying His attributes and character and abilities. And so this is a good reminder, not just of how we view the Scriptures, but how we view the God of the Scriptures and how we view life. Don't be a fool. Illustration number two. The contradictory stipulation. Look at the other part of verse 36. He says, That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And now we get into the actual illustration. It seems contradictory at first until you realize that the illustration is that of a seed. A seed that you would plant. And this seeming contradiction is a necessary part of new life. In order for a new plant to grow, its former existence, the seed, must die. You need to die to have life. So as with the plant, death is the precondition of life for us. It is out of death that new life, in our case wonderfully so, eternal glorified life, springs. And we've been saying this all along, death is not the end. It is actually necessary for resurrection. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, because we'll take a look at a similar illustration from the lips of our Lord. doesn't exactly say the same thing, but gives us the same basic principle. Chapter 12, Gospel of John, verses 24 and 25. 12th chapter of John Verses 24 and 25 tell us this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. In this context in John, Jesus is saying that death is necessary for fruit. So it's a bit different. But the analogy and underlying point are the same. This newness of life, whether fruit in the Christian life or resurrection unto eternity, is initiated by the death of the individual, the death of the seed. For us, this simply means that our physical, our earthly, our current bodies must die for the new eternal resurrection body to exist. And we go back to Paul calling resurrection deniers fools because they are denying God's creative and sovereign power. If he can do it with every single plant you've ever seen and any produce you've ever eaten, then surely he can and will do it with you. 
speaking of the fool, you can take this full circle and see how the fool actually contradicts himself every time he goes out to that field and plants a seed or every time he eats a carrot. Paul is saying this is the same thing. You see this in your life season after season. God can do it. And here's the point. Although seemingly contradictory, there is a stipulation, a requirement for life, and that's death. We must die so that one day we will be resurrected anew. Well, let's move on to our next foundational illustration of the resurrection body, and that is the contrasting species. The contrasting species. Look at verse 37. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. If you are like my wife and I, you like to garden. And if you're like us, you like to do so not so much by running out to your local hardware store or nursery and buying seedlings, baby plants, for those of you who are non-gardeners, but by planting seeds. So you probably have somewhere in your garage or it's in, for us it's in our kitchen for some reason, you have a Ziploc bag or a container full of different seed packets and those seed packets have a picture of what is, will be grown if you're successful. That's very important. If you're successful, little clue into my backyard, the name of the seed, carrot, snap peas, broccoli, sunflower, and then some instructions. There is no way you would take all of those packets and dump all your seeds into a Ziploc bag and then throw away the packets because you would have no idea, unless you've been doing this for many years, you would have no idea what goes to what. Maybe some of them. Like the dried kernel of corn, of course, is going to grow corn, but most of them look like nothing. They look like dust. They look like hairs, some of them. Because the seed does not look like what the plant is going to be when it comes from the seed. And even when you can determine the plant by seeing the seed, such as the dried kernel of corn or a sunflower seed, that kernel of corn looks nothing like an ear of corn that you eat, let alone an ear of corn with the husk still on it, let alone a giant plant of corn. You ever seen how big those are? Obviously, a sunflower seed, you know what's going to grow out of that. But if you think that all it's going to grow is more of those seeds, you are going to be pleasantly surprised by the beauty of the sunflower and perhaps a little frightened by its size. And this is Paul's point here. When you garden, you sow a seed, such as a single bare grain, and not the future body it will be. You don't take, cut down a giant sunflower that's six feet tall and shove it into the ground. That's not how you plant things. You plant a seed. And someday it will turn into something else like wheat 
as Paul says here. You put one thing in the ground, a seed, something else comes up, a plant. God puts one thing here on earth, your current body, something else comes up in eternity, your glorified body, your resurrection body. And now Paul starts getting more into the nitty-gritty of what our resurrection bodies will actually be like. What he says here is that, first of all, it will not be like the body that is sitting in a chair right now. Look at Jesus. After his resurrection, we have indication that, yes, he was a physical resurrected body, but he was somehow no longer bound by time and space. We're like in the Gospels this morning, so turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 24, and we'll see some incidents of this. Now, I want to remind you that we have seen, and maybe you weren't here, so by way of reminder or renewal, that we saw in Jesus Christ that our resurrection bodies will be the same in type and character. And so the attributes that we see in the physical body, resurrected body of Jesus Christ, will be ours as well. Luke chapter 24, verses 15 through 16. He has been resurrected. A couple of his disciples are walking on this famous road to Emmaus. And Jesus appears and goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? By his choice, as we see in the passage, they don't know who he is. And they're blown away. Are you really the only person who has not heard of what has happened these last few days? And he says, tell me about it. And so they start telling him about it. And then he jumps in and says, yes, but remember the prophets. And he starts filling in more because, as you know, the disciples were confused. Why did he die? He wasn't supposed to die. They didn't get it. Then we get to this passage, Luke 24, 15. He says, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Then jump down to 31. He reveals himself to them. It says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. By the way, This was after he sits down to eat with them. That'll become important in a minute. After this, as I'm sure you would, the disciples get excited. They run back to the other disciples. We would probably just create a group text. But they run back to where the other disciples are cowering, hiding, explaining what has just happened. And then look at 24, verse 36 and following. While they, these are the two people that Jesus just spoke to, were telling these things, he himself, Jesus Christ, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. See, he's emphasizing that he's, it's a human, physical human body, not a spirit. Verse 41. While they still cannot believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Why were they shocked and frightened and think he was a spirit? 
Because in the same way that he vanished just a moment ago with those two on the road, he suddenly appeared without opening any doors or windows. He just appeared in their midst. And then, as I mentioned a second ago, he said, I'm not a spirit. I'm a physical body. Look at me. I have flesh. I have bones. In fact, you still don't believe me? Give me a piece of fish. I'm hungry. And so this is the resurrection body. So we have a clue here. When we say that it will not be like our current bodies, we have a clue as to what that means. Now clearly, our resurrection bodies will live in a different place as well. The recreated, renewed, new earth. And so things there will be different as well. But as we will see in a minute, we will have bodies that are appropriate to that environment and that setting. Physical bodies, not spirits. And we've seen in the last point that death is necessary for life, for resurrection life. And now Paul makes the point that the resurrection body will not be the same as our current body. Just as a plant that comes up from the ground is not the same as the seed that went into it. Now when you think about the glorified body, our eternal bodies, you need to set aside any visions or expectations that everything will be the same. This is what can get us really confused and even frustrated. I get it. We think physical body now, physical body in the future. Both will be physical bodies. And so we put two and two together. We start thinking about food. We start thinking about organs. We start thinking about our physical handicaps our birthmarks, people who have lost limbs to disease or war. And that's all well and good so long as it is in the context of worshipful curiosity and anticipatory joy. Take it too far and you can start questioning. You can start doubting and you start eking into what Paul is anticipating and saying, uh, I just don't see how that's possible. And then you start going down that rabbit hole of questioning his character and his abilities. And to that point, I take you back to the analogy. The farmer sows the seed. No matter how good he is, no matter how much he has perfected his craft, he does not because he cannot make it grow. God does that. And that is something we would do well to remember and to practice. Like the farmer, we must trust God. Know that He is active and will bring it to pass because unlike the farmer, we don't need to question whether that particular seed will sprout or if the resulting plant will be healthy. We know because He has promised. And that leads us to our fourth foundational illustration of the resurrection body, the creative sovereignty. Verse 38. But God gives it a body just as He wished, 
and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now for any of this to make sense, anything that we've talked about thus far about the resurrection body, you have to believe in God's creative genius and His absolute sovereignty. In the resurrection, everything is about God's power and, and this is so important, God's choice, His choice, not ours, nobody else's. And that's the point that Paul is making here again using an analogy of seeds. Going back to the question that started this passage regarding what kind of body we will have, the answer is, first and foremost, remember this is foundational stuff, just like the Christian life, start with the big picture foundational issues. Sorry, I saw my middle son walk by pushing a stroller. You have, before you go into the details of the Christian life, you need to start with the foundational basics. And so, going back to the question, what kind of body will we have? You first have to answer it this way, whatever God chooses. Look at the verse. God gives it a body just as He wished. ESV, as He has chosen. NIV, as He has determined. All fair translations of the Greek because the emphasis is on God's will and God's wishes. He has chosen what seed will become what plant just as He has chosen what body will have what resurrection body. Now whatever questions you may have regarding your particular resurrection body, the truth underlying any answers you find or any answers you desire must be that the resurrection body is an activity of God. And this is why Paul calls the questioner a fool, because he is ignoring this fundamental aspect of the resurrection body, and frankly, of all things, which is God's sovereignty. What that seed becomes is out of that seed's control, and what we become is out of our control. The point here is not that we are somehow trying to determine what kind of resurrection body we will have. I don't think anyone tries to do that. I have never in my life asked a Christian why he works out so much. And the, the answer is, I want to have a really sculpted resurrection body. Right? We know that we don't have any say in that. We get that. So the point is not to rebuke the Corinthians for trying to have a say in their glorified body. The point is to emphasize God's sovereignty. That is, His choice his will, his freedom, his absolute control. In the seed and the plant, we were reminded that this was the case from the very beginning in creation. It was then that God decreed what plants would make what kind of seeds and that those seeds would become the same type of plants. It is all about God's sovereignty. It was His will that every seed would produce a body according to its particular genus and species. And this has continued throughout the history of the world. Yes, science has altered our produce so that our strawberries are now abnormally large, but it's still a strawberry. At the same time, God has given each seed a particular individuality. 
And so it is with us. And that's Paul's point in the second part of the verse. And to each of the seeds, God gives a body of its own. Everyone is different. And everyone will be different. Depictions of the heavenly host often have all the beings in the presence of God look exactly the same. So we can often think that is what eternity will look like. But we, what we know is that although we will have transformed bodies, we will still have our unique identities and personalities. Minus, of course, the sin, which has more influence on your personality than you probably realize. So, we will all have bodies that are proper for us, but glorified, sinless, eternal. Yes, in essence, we will all be similar, but we will also all be distinct. If you were to go into my garden and take a little cutting from one of my rose bushes and go to the back of my garden where our other rose bush is and cut a little piece of that rose bush from the same general area, a stem or a leaf, and then take it, not to my house, but somewhere there's a microscope, and you look them under the microscope, they're going to look almost identical because they're both rose bushes. But if you go back to my garden, you're going to say, those are totally different. They're not, not identical at all. That one's two feet tall. This one's three feet tall. This one's peach-colored. That one's red. Those roses are tiny. These are huge. It's the same idea with the resurrection body. We will all be the same in terms of physical makeup inside. We will all be glorified. We will all be eternal. Right? There's no end to eternity. There's no, like when we were kids, remember this? Infinity plus one, remember that? Because you wanted to be, infinity plus two, you wanted to be better than the other guy. We'll all, we will all live forever. We will all be sinless. All of those promises, tears wiped away, all of that will be the same. There won't be some who are frolicking with animals and some, man, the animals just don't like him for some reason. It's all going to be the same for us, but we will all be unique just as we are today. This is, again, due to God's creative sovereignty. You take away God's sovereignty, you have issues not only with the resurrection body, you have issues with everything. By the way, perhaps more so than ever in our Instagram world, we can become dissatisfied, discontent with our current temporary earthly bodies. And I want to encourage you with the truth that God's choice and sovereignty were involved in your current body as well. As they say, warts and all. Praise God for it. Work hard. Be a good steward, but most of all, be thankful. So, we're looking at foundational illustrations of the resurrection body. We have seen the continued skepticism, the doubts that led us to the illustrations. 
the contradictory stipulation, death is necessary for life. The contrasting species, a seed grows into a plant. In the same way, our resurrection body is different than our earthly body. We just saw the creative sovereignty. God is in control of all of this. He chooses or assigns as He wills. And finally, the characteristic singularities. The characteristic singularities. And this finishes off this one large chunk here, verses 39 through 41. He writes, All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And Paul is here explaining that everything is different. There is this beautiful, wonderful variety in life. Men are not animals, animals are not birds, birds are not fish. Specifically, they all have different bodies, they all have different flesh. Obviously, each is created by God to be ideally suited for its own needs, flying, living underwater, hibernating, high altitudes, what have you. And ultimately, all these examples give us faith in God's ability to create different kinds of bodies. And then in verse 40 and 41, Paul compares earthly bodies with celestial bodies. Not heaven, where God resides, but outer space. The sun, the moon, the stars. Again, stressing the diversity God has created. Paul says that the human, animal, or plant's glory is different than the glory of the lights in the sky. Glory here meaning more form or nature or manifestation. And verse 41 gives us specifics. You know this. The sun is brighter than the stars that tend to be brighter than the moon. Even the stars vary in size and brightness. And modern science has confirmed with telescopes what men have seen with their eyes for millennia. Every star is different. What's Paul's point? It's very simple. His point is don't limit God. And so we come full circle. You want to question the resurrection body's existence or form? Answer? Look around. All you have to do is look at your own family. Even if everyone is of the same ethnicity, you look different. You do different things. All these windows are shaded, and just in my short view, I can see three varieties of different trees within the same 20 square feet. Each tree's glory is different from another, just as their glory is different from mine, as is different from yours. Variety, distinctions, wonder, and glory. Let me put all of this another way. How do we know that God can resurrect us? Answer, 
because there are 8.7 million species of animals on earth. Get it? We serve an awesome God. He can do it. He will do it. Five foundational illustrations of the resurrection body. Continued skepticism, contradictory stipulation, the contrasting, contrasting species, the creative sovereignty, and finally, the characteristic singularities. My illustration earlier of gardening, I will start another illustration the same way. If you are like my wife and I, you are generally more of a failed gardener than a successful gardener, probably because of the fact that we choose to just use seeds and not seedlings, but that's neither here nor there. Here's what I do. I plant my seeds. I cover them with dirt. I water them. I watch the sun. I water them, look at them, hoping, expecting. And most of them, I read on the packet. I've never experienced this, but the packet says they're supposed to sprout in a few days, a week or two. They tell you exactly how long. So let's say it says five days, you should sprout. Okay, so I'm, like, I'm on like week three, and I'm still watering, and I'm still looking. And no joke, some of these seeds have sprouted the following year, so, you know, don't laugh too much. It happens. It's a year late. It's very strange. But what I'll do is I'll say, well, now it's another season. So I'm, now I'm supposed to plant my winter vegetables. But I don't want to plant a seed if maybe, because this has happened before, it sprouted a couple months late because I'll kill it. And so what I'll do is I'll dig around there. I know you're not supposed to do this. I'll dig around like trying to look for a little sprout. And eventually what I'll do, what will happen is the seed that I planted will pop up day after day of watering, walking out to my garden, rain or shine to check, scolding the kids, don't get close to the garden. And now a month later, what pops up is the exact same seed that I planted and my reaction is always the same. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted. No, of course not. Why would I be excited after all of that time and effort and watering and looking around because we're in a drought or my neighbor's going to report me? I don't really do that. My neighbors don't care. But why would I be excited that I just found the seed that I planted? Because I did not want that same seed back. I wanted a plant, I wanted produce. Not that dead seed. But friends, that's so often how we live, isn't it? Being so excited, more excited about the earthly body and our short time on earth than the plant that is to come. We spend more effort building here than in eternity. 
And all we're doing is spending 60, 70, 80 years excited about a dead seed. Friends, eternity is real. Worship God now. Be good stewards now. Enjoy God's grace and physical blessing now. But don't live for now. Live in light of future glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that the resurrection is real. Thank you that you have given us insight into what this wonderful thing that we anticipate and long for will be like. Grow us in our worship and our practical living for eternity as we unpack these next few verses over the weeks to come. Help us to see, Lord, each and every one of us, as in your wisdom and genius, we are all different. How each and every one of us may need to tweak our behavior, our priorities, where we're living too much for the here and now and not investing for the kingdom, for eternity. Help us to be those who are passionate believers, using our time here on earth maximally for your glory, which means and includes focusing on the future. Would you make us those people, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we